as bad as that is, it's not as bad as vegetable oils because vegetable oils do something completely different and almost like completely novel. Nothing else in the diet can do this so powerfully. And what they do is has to do with chemistry. It can make oxygen start attacking our tissues. And we get these things called free radical chain reactions where we are inside each one of our cells. We are getting like a little miniature nuclear reaction going on where high energy particles are flying around and just destroying things. They can destroy our proteins, our DNA. They can destroy our cell membranes. And this creates inflammatory disease much more powerfully than sugar can. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril here with my co host, Pastor Elliot Anderson. And Love and Life is your place to hear conversations grounded in psych research, psychotherapy, and biblical truth to help us thrive in love and life. About a year ago, I heard a term that was new to me seed oils. And I also heard that they are particularly unhealthy for us, yet they're everywhere. They're in almost all processed foods, even the ones that look really healthy and seem to be all about fitness, like protein bars and granola bars. But why are industrial seed oils bad for us? They sound okay. Vegetable oil, corn oil, sunflower oil, cottonseed, soy, safflower. They actually sound more than okay. They sound pretty decent for us especially since we know how bad butter and animal fats are for us, right? At least that's what we've been told for many, many years now. At Love & Life, we are all about thriving holistically in our mind, our body, and our spirit because these all work together and we can't neglect any one of these elements and expect to live a healthy, abundant, joyful, energetic life. To help us understand why seemingly benign oils should be avoided, we've invited Dr. Kate Shanahan to the program. She's so committed to helping us steer clear of seed oils, she calls them the hateful eight. Yes, they are that bad. Here's a little bit more about Dr. Shanahan. Dr. Kate Shanahan is the leading authority on nutrition and human metabolism. A board-certified family physician with over 20 years of clinical experience and New York Times bestselling author of The Fat Burn Fix, Deep Nutrition, and Food Rules, her expertise is fixing the underlying problems that cause metabolic damage and inflammation, leading to autoimmunity, weight gain, diabetes, cancer, and accelerated aging processes. Her passion is helping people feel their best. My interview with Dr. Kate Shanahan, right after this. Dr. Kate, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here with you. I have to tell you that I'm fangirling a bit because, and I hope you hear this a lot, it's not really an overstatement to say you've changed my life, (laughs) truly, because as the seed oil concerns, and this is stuff we'll get into here in a minute, but as some of these, I was understanding that much of what we had been learning over the last 30, 40 years as far as weight management and optimal nutrition. And of course, as a psychologist, that all interweaves with mental health. I started realizing that I kept hearing the seed oil stuff from some other doctors I follow, like Dr. Mercola. Then I saw an interview with you. I read an article you wrote and I got your fat burn fix. 
And I realized something that I was doing completely wrong, which was I wasn't getting enough protein. I was eating too many processed foods, not even understanding one of the realities is that these processed foods with these seed oils are such that our bodies really don't know what to do with them. And so many of us are carrying around extra weight and leading to all kinds of other complications based on some misinformation we've gotten. I hate that word right now because it sounds so political, but that's not the case. It's just that the fat focus was such a feature of my generation, Gen X, and we were taught, forget the steak, forget the eggs. And your research and what you're advocating for now is a real paradigm shift. So explain to the listener how you got into this space and what you've been learning in your journey as you're understanding really what's going on with the obesity epidemic and the chronic disease epidemic in America. Yeah, what is going on with all that? Yeah. And <laughs> the answer is it's mostly our diet in so many more ways than people even realize because we do have is other issues. We're much less active and trapped indoors in a lot of ways, but the effect of these seed oils on our metabolism is something that I have found to be very important in terms of driving poor health and understanding the whole country's problems and even my own problems. So I got into this early in 2000s, like 2001 and 2002, when I had a health problem myself and nothing was working to fix it. I did have a very severe sugar addiction, but I didn't think I had a problem with sugar because I wasn't particularly overweight. I was a crazy exerciser my whole life. So I just loved being active and I didn't really have too much trouble with my weight, although I can never be like too thin. <laughs> no, <laughs> some of us busy, women tend to think that. There's that saying, can't be too rich or too thin. I had like actually 20 pounds that I ended up losing once I changed my diet, but that's not why I changed my diet at all. And I changed my diet because it turned out that I understood what seed oils were after doing a lot of work. I never even heard of them, never even right. thought about them, but my eyes were open to the existence of these toxins that I'd been eating. Once I encountered an interesting term in a book by Andrew Weil, who was like the original guru of functional medicine. He sold a lot of supplements, they made a lot of money. But he also talked about nutrition and he talked about essential fatty acids. So when I was struggling with my health due to a mysterious virus that somewhat remains mysterious, it's like affecting my nervous system. I was struggling with my health and I, was, I came across this term about these essential fatty acids and I didn't know what they were because this was so early, this was, more than 20 years ago. Now it almost seems inconceivable that we ha I could have gone through medical school without learning about omega-3, but that is a type of fatty acid. But what I learned was actually that these, that you could eat too much of these things and that would be a problem. So originally my thought was that, oh, maybe these things will help me get better. Maybe if I just have more omega-3 or omega-6 or something, I'll be able to get better. But once I learned more about it, I found out, wait a second, no, these things have activities in our body that nobody was talking about. And they had to do with the fundamental chemistry, principles of chemistry that I learned as a PhD student in Cornell. And I thought that would never apply to me medical science at all whatsoever. But it totally did because it, it opened my eyes to the reality that, to mind-blowing reality, really, 
that everything I thought I knew about fat was backwards. <laughs> Saturated fat is actually something that people traditionally used to eat and is chemically better for our bodies to have in larger amounts than these polyunsaturated fatty acids that are coming into our diet in massive quantities. And nobody's really focused on it. In medicine, certainly not. No, no one is focused on it. I've been talking about it for 20 years now. So there's a right. lot of folks in more of the holistic approach and the ancestral medicine approach now who are aware that these things are bad for you. But I have to keep talking about this because I need to frame up that they are the worst things and help people understand what they do to you because they drive sugar addictions. They made me more prone to being a sugar addict. And once I got these things out of my diet, and then you can't just get them out of your diet, they're in your body fat, they build up in your body fat. Then over more time as they came out of my body fat, I found I had no attraction to sugar the way I used to. It was just a, like a, an amazing transformation that I wasn't even expecting. Like I was mostly in the beginning of my whole journey, I was paying more attention to sugar because I, I, my husband was always on, on my case, <laughs> as we said, about all the sugar I ate. I really was a massive sugarholic. I was living on Hawaii at the time. There was no Starbucks. I never even really had heard of Starbucks, but I had heard of caramel sauce, which I made myself because you couldn't buy a concentrated enough form on this little island. <laughs> so I had a quarter cup of sugar in my coffee confection right. every single day. And so once I started learning more about how sugar affects the body and the immune system, I came to realize that, oh, I better cut that down. But what I didn't realize until years after the fact was that because I was also cutting out the seed oils and including more of the healthy fats, the butter, the olive oils, traditional fats, just getting full fat burgers, <laughs> it was simple. Right. Because I was doing that, it was a lot easier for me to cut out the sugar than if I hadn't been doing that. So. There's a lot there, and I think it's important to unpack that maybe a little step-by-step. Step. How does that work? So the reason that sugar that we hear about most often, that like people have a sweet tooth or they're addicted to sugar or carbs, is because of this pleasurable sensation we get when we eat them. Mm -hmm. It's called like the hedonistic reward. Mm -hmm. It has to do with chemicals that our brain releases, which probably you've had people talking about before, or you probably talk about it all the time, is that like the dopamine and the serotonin systems in our brain, the reward systems. Sugar makes, sugar, just the taste of it, will give us this burst of dopamine release in our brain, and it can be very addicting, and you just can end up just looking forward to that disproportionately to looking right. forward to other foods, right? So many people are, are still like the way I was with this. And maybe, maybe you can relate a little bit if you've ever been like this was like, you would get through the dinner and <laughs> get that ice cream because <laughs> that's, that was the real point of eating. Right. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> that went away after it had happened. I couldn't really believe that I had accomplished this. And what I did to get rid of the sugar was gradually go down on the on it. I had enough discipline, thank goodness, 
So that the only thing, the only time of day I had sugar was just that once a day in my coffee. Like I more or less resisted having too much desserts and snacks and things like that. So when I decided to cut down, I just gradually cut down. I was like, maybe I'll just sneak myself down and I won't notice. (laughs) My taste buds won't notice. Because, and I thought that because there's actually research behind that. Like I had read some research that said that the more sugar you get, the more you need. There was an interesting study that I had read about that they did in the Middle East where the main sugar was sugar that people added to their tea that they would have in the afternoon. And there was an interesting study that showed that people in the city versus in the country had completely different like degrees of sweetener. And Mm. in the city, they needed something like 12 teaspoons for it in in their tea to taste as sweet as people in the country thought it tasted. Oh, wow. Yeah. I forget how they compared those those two levels of sweetness, but they had some scientific way of doing it. And so I was like, wow, maybe I could become more like those people in the country if I just gradually turn myself down. Because it was like the, I got the concept is that sugar was dulling my sense of taste. And I'm sure it was. But the other big part of it was that the polyunsaturated fatty acids, they make you addicted to sugar in a whole other way. Not just for that dopamine, not just for that pleasure, but they change your metabolism. So your metabolism is a sugar addict and it needs it for energy. So you need it for energy. You can't use your body fat. And people, like, what does that mean? How does that feel? Hangry. That's where hangry comes from. Then that's because when you're hangry, your brain is not getting enough energy. You are experiencing a relative energy deficit from your blood sugar being a little bit too low because your whole body needs sugar and it can't use your body fat. That is an abnormal metabolic state and it drives people to overeat. Even if they have the best willpower in the world, it becomes over time more and more difficult because you will accidentally overeat and then you just have to keep upping your exercise routine. And that's the state that I was in where I was like chronically just a little bit heavier and a little bit heavier (laughs) every couple of years and just had more and more trouble getting it off. So finally, when I changed my diet, I ultimately ended up, now I'm like 30 pounds less than what I was. And, and I don't crave things. I don't, I'm almost never hungry because I don't actually Mm. do a lot of exercise anymore. And And so exercise helps makes you hungry, but it's that kind of hangry hunger that I used to have that I just don't have. And when people still have that, they, it's very hard to maintain a normal weight. So the reason I wrote the fat burn fix was to help people understand how to detect that more, there's more symptoms of it than just the hangry. Mm -hmm. There's a collection of 11 symptoms. So I wanted to teach people how to detect all of those symptoms and then exactly what to do to go through the process most easily so that they don't have to experience a lot of, they don't have to have a ton of willpower. They just have to be able to get a little bit of things, a little bit organized in terms of their daily eating habits. And it doesn't rely so much on willpower anymore. 
I listen to Sean Stevenson's podcast too. And he, all his clients come to him and they say, I'll do whatever, but don't mess with my bread or don't mess with my carbs. Because it, it does seem incredibly daunting to take away. And I love my sweets. But it, what I found was I was trying to implement some of the strategies you talk about just to focus on those seed oils first and foremost. And then you find out they're in everything, in literally yeah. everything. And so by just focusing on that, then what I had to do is increase my protein, which I'm quite sure I was protein deficient for many years. Yeah. Again, thinking I'm not eating all that red meat, so I'm doing myself a favor. Complete opposite, complete opposite. So I've been learning so much through your work and the work of others. We'd love to connect with you further via our weekly newsletter. Joining the Love and Life family gets you first access to bonus content and flash sale pricing for books and consultations. And when you sign up, you'll receive Karen's Empowered Dating Playbook or my Empowered Marriage Playbook. Head over to loveandlifemedia.com to join the Love and Life family. Let's just go back to the basics just for a moment because when I talk to people and I'll, talk, I'll say something like, I'm avoiding seed oils, They'll look at me like, what's that? (laughs) And then you go vegetable oil. That sounds really good. And then folks who came up in our generation will say, yeah, we remember shortening and that was better than lard, of course. And of course, now I'm thinking, no, it wasn't. But I'm from Cincinnati originally. So Procter & Gamble and Crisco. And there is a whole history of how this is going to change these ways of eating. Like you mentioned earlier, the ancestral, the ways that our body knows how to manage the food that we're taking in. And there's a quote from your book that I love. And I see people differently. I look around at people because we have an obesity epidemic. And I think you, you say in Fat Burn Fix, modern body fat is much different than what nature intended because it's made up of these vegetable oils that sound so benign. They sound perfectly healthy. And yet our body would be so much more equipped to manage the fat that we intake, if it were lard, which sounds crazy talk to me until literally a couple years ago, because I wasn't on this train as you were for 20 years. So help people understand what we've learned about fat and how, frankly, much of that is completely incorrect. And I'm not trying to have some sort of notion that this company was out to get us or this industry was out to get us. But we do have to also think about those factions of society that make money off of the diet industry likes us being fat. The pharmaceutical industry likes us being sick. And that's where my little cynical edge comes in. But uh, speak to that a little bit, like where we've been led astray. And let's even assume it was through pure intentions, but where we are now, because I'll talk to people and they'll say, they were pounding that bacon and eggs and then they had the heart attack. And I'm thinking, that's not why they had the heart attack. Right. Yeah. So it all originates, like our problems with our health, with our diet, like mentality originate in mostly in 1948 when the American Heart Association, which is the organization that basically now educates all of us around fats, what are healthy, what are not, because they they are the original source of the concept that saturated fat clogs your arteries. But the reason I pinpoint 1948 is because that was the year that Procter and Gamble, makers of cottonseed oil and Crisco, donated them $1.7 million in 1948 dollars, which equates to $30 million in today's yeah. dollars. Yeah, I looked it up on the Google things. They tell you this now. <laughs> <laughs> so that was quite a bit of money. And the American Heart Association was newly, newly restructured at that point. So this is important to understand because there's a lot of medical organizations that have deep roots in 
the early 1900s that started out truly not exactly philanthropically, but not for anything other than the pursuit of science. And so the American Heart Association was actually founded in the 20s by cardiologists who were just interested in understanding all different diseases of the heart. And then 20 years later, heart attack rates had been killing people left and right. That was a new thing. And it was very terrifying to the American public. And then after World War II, Eisenhower, President Eisenhower had a heart attack. And suddenly the whole country had heard of heart attacks. Literally, most people had not heard of a heart attack. In fact, they didn't even call it a heart attack then. They called it a coronary because the name of the arteries in the heart are the coronary arteries. And so that woke people up to this killer that was increasing and nobody really had a handle on it. The scientists were looking into it at that point. There were lots of ideas floating around. It was too early to make a call, really, because it was just a, it was a new thing. It takes a while to figure stuff out. And but they had their ideas. They thought high blood pressure. They thought stress. They thought smoking. And they really thought smoking. They're like, this makes a lot of sense because it's not a healthy thing. And we weren't doing a lot of this before. And nobody really thought fat. But one person did. <laughs> and his name was Ansel Keys. And mm-hmm. he was affiliated with the American Heart Association. And in my estimation of this man. He was an egomaniac who just wanted credit. And he also, unfortunately, had a really negative attitude about people who were overweight. He literally is quoted as saying, if the fat man took his own health seriously, then we wouldn't have this problem. He was like the original fat shamer in in the media. (laughs) And he said that in one of his most famous interviews in Time magazine. And he actually also literally said the word disgusting, describing overweight people. Not acceptable today. That wouldn't have been published. But I guess they thought it was like inspiring or whatever. Finger waving was like the way of instructing people back then. So anyway, so he had it in for people who are overweight, was looking to blame them. And the whole gluttonous food concept just really appealed to him. And he was looking, he originally was looking into fat, just fat, like blaming fat. He didn't specify saturated or not. But interestingly, coincidentally, somehow, after Procter & Gamble, makers of polyunsaturated cottonseed oil, sponsored the American Heart Association, then he starts focusing on saturated fat. So clearly there's some intellectual conflicts of interest. There's probably some serious financial conflicts of interest that we're just not privy to at this point. 70 years in history, it was never going to find that out. But lots of, lots of reasons to blame butter and lard, lots of artificial like science created to support this preconceived idea. And that's what the American Heart Association has been started producing as of 1950, really, once they started having, getting like this data rolling in. That's where this all came from. It was really just a very sophisticated marketing arm of Procter & Gamble. And then later on, they had developed relationships with other processed food industries, companies. And really the American Heart Association turned 
medicine into a marketing arm of the processed food industry. And you look, if you look at what dietitians these days are trained to recommend, they're recommending soy milk, which is a whole processed food, didn't exist 100 years ago. They recommend that over actual milk. They, the diet, sports dietitians recommend whey protein powder, right? You can't have milk. You can't just recommend milk or cheese. Right. <laughs> you have to recommend processed protein powder, whey protein especially, which is a byproduct of the yogurt making industry. Again, it's like a very low prof, low cost food, high profit margin. For many years, they had relationships, tighter relationships with the sugar industry. Now that those have been exposed, they're loosening back on all the soda that they used to recommend. <laughs> but so dietitians are still stuck in recommending processed food. They, they don't recommend meat. Why? It's not processed. It, it's comes, it came from a farm. It could have come from a farm. There's no huge profit margin there. And so it's not like you have to be a conspiracy theorist. It's just, you have to almost be stupid not to follow the money. It's, hello, this is just commerce. This is the world we created when we decided to go with capitalism, like capitalism to the max, right? I think human society has almost always been a little bit capitalistic. It's just that we didn't have so many different things to sell. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And it's, I think it gets... I think as a person who's not a medical doctor and someone who's just trying to do my own health journey for myself and for my husband and for people I love to learn, it gets very dicey because like you said, the marketing, the information that comes out that many people trust. And then I come in and say, let's pump the brakes here. Let's look at this. They can look at me as like, oh, you're so cynical. Oh, you're conspiracy theorist. And it's funny because I come by that honestly. My father was a music professor, jazz musician. Like he just always was anti-establishment, question everything. Yeah, so I was taught very early, even before I was in the field of psychotherapy and then later a professor of psychology, I was taught very early to be skeptical of what we now call big pharma. But he would tell me things in the 70s and 80s when I was a child, just saying things like, those pharmaceutical reps, they show up at the doctor's office. So when you go in the next day, they have an incentive to try to push a pill. He's like, it's not so different from drug pushers on the street. Now, and I say that, and I'm sure half the people listening are like, oh my gosh, like she doesn't trust any medicine. What is she saying? That all medicine is corrupt? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying exactly what you said a moment ago. Can we at least be honest enough to understand motivations and incentives and then try to to pull back and say, let's think about, again, we were talking about earlier and you spoke to in the book, we see an obesity epidemic. Our grandmothers and grandfathers ate plenty of meat and potatoes all day long. Now it was grass fed because they pulled it off the farm. My mom grew up in a dairy farm and she talks about how her stepfather would just take the cream right off the top. The cream rises to the top and and growing up in our generation thinking, oh my gosh, that was probably so unhealthy. It wasn't pasteurized. It wasn't this. And now I'm just, everything's upside down for me now in a great way because I feel that I'm, it's like you say, and others in your space talk about if it's coming out of a box, if it doesn't look like food that your grandmother and great grandparents would recognize, we got to think about that. What is our body? Does our body even know how to manage that? And then as I was saying earlier, and you speak to, I feel bad for people who I know they're carrying around those extra 30, 40 pounds and they're trying really hard and they shouldn't be fat shamed, but they've just been told things that aren't true and their body's hanging on to this weight. It doesn't know how to process it. 
If you're interested in processing further as you align your mind, body, and spirit, we're here for you. Head over to loveandlifemedia.com and click on the Work With Us tab. There you can book individual or couples sessions. Or sign up for one of our support groups. Purchase one session or a multiple session package. We'd love to work with you. Sign up at loveandlifemedia.com. I remember in Fat Burn Fix, maybe you can speak to this just a little bit. I know we're going deep, but I think for anyone who wants to go to that level, you talk about how fat on a physiological level, it is slippery, like fat where sugar is sticky. And so when we talk about clogged arteries, again, that's a phrase that we're all familiar with. It's really sugar that's more likely to cause that. Let's talk about the different effects in our bodies of like fats versus sugar. And so when I wrote Deep Nutrition, I wasn't sure which was the worst dietary demon between vegetable oils and sugar. So I want to talk about sugar, what it can do to us harmful wise and what it can't do. So what sugar does is when we eat a lot of it at once and we get a spike, our, when I say spike, a blood sugar spike, because when it comes into our system really quickly, our body has the ability to regulate sugar in a very narrow range. But if we get a whole bunch at once, there's just a little bit of lag in the system. So we're going to double, triple the amount of sugar in our bloodstream there for a little while. And so a normal blood sugar between 80 and 100 after you have a Coke and a banana or something like that, it might go up to 180, it might go up to 200. And it, well, we're healthy, it'll stay there for a half hour to an hour and a half. During that time, bad things are happening. And that has to do with the stickiness. Stickiness gets on our fingers, we feel it. Because sugar is, our, is binding to the proteins in the skin. Sugar binds to proteins. And it does that in our bloodstream as well. So it can bind to anything that has protein on it in our bloodstream. And that includes the fat carrying particles, that includes our arteries themselves. And then also it can even bind to the connective tissues in our joints. And so a lot of people notice that on days where they eat more sugar, they wake up the next day and they just feel stiff and achy. And that's why. So it's not inflammation or anything abstract. It is directly attacking the proteins in your joints. And the last thing you want in joints is stickiness because joints are all about motion and lubrication. That's on a high level how sugar is bad for us. Now, thankfully, most of the time we can regulate our blood sugar. So unless we're having super amounts of sugar many times a day, for the most part, our body's going to be able to handle that and we won't suffer too much, although it really will accelerate the whole aging process. It's not good to do. <laughs> it's not good to spike or double your blood sugar on a daily basis even, but it's really not good to do it multiple times a day. But as bad as that is, it's not as bad as vegetable oils because vegetable oils do something completely different and almost like completely novel. Nothing else in the diet can do this so powerfully. And what they do is has to do with chemistry. It can make oxygen start attacking our tissues. And we get these things called free radical chain reactions where we are inside each one of our cells. We are getting like a little min miniature nuclear reaction going on where 
high energy particles are flying around and just destroying things. They can destroy our proteins, our DNA, they can destroy our cell membranes. And this creates inflammatory disease much more powerfully than sugar can. So I just like to have that like hierarchy correct mm -hmm. because it's important to know that first of all, it's the worst thing in the diet. So that's the one thing that if you got to start somewhere, that's where really you should start. And secondly, because it's not addicting, nobody, oh God, I just can't wait to eat more flavorless vegetable oil, right? No. So I don't think it's even possible to be addicted to that stuff. It's easy to eliminate. No one's going to jones for it. And thirdly, because once you get it out of your diet and you get healthy fats into your diet, then it is easier to cut down on sugar. That's why I like to have that whole conversation big picture. Like that's step one. And right. that's why I made it step one in the fat burn fix. There's only five steps in the fat burn fix. That is step one. Step two is get a handle on your carbs, but I don't say to completely eliminate them early on because you, first of all, you don't really have to. And secondly, some people can't. And they sh some people even perhaps, we don't really know, but perhaps they shouldn't. There's reason to believe that it could be harmful to go zero carb too quickly. There is way too much good information in this interview to try to lump it all together because sometimes it's a good idea to just listen, process, digest, and then have some space to reflect and then listen to the rest of the interview, which is what we're going to do today. So join us next week for part two of our interview with Dr. Kate Shanahan. As always, we really appreciate you spending a portion of your day with us. And we hope that every single episode brings something of value to your life, to your mind, to your body, to your spirit, or to all of the above. Because we are one being, holistic, and all of these elements thriving together to help us thrive in love and life. Until next time. Make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abram.